article Improving the Efficiency of the Development of Drugs for Stroke, published in the Translational Research Edition of the International Journal of Stroke, uses empirical evidence derived from systematic reviews of stroke drug development to identify stages of drug development which might be improved and proposes helpful exemplar strategies and basic economic modelling assessing the impact of these strategies. Carmen Leif Jenkins, Managing Editor of the International Journal of Stroke, spoke to Associate Professor David Howells from the Florey Institutes of Neurosciences and Mental Health. What does stroke cost our communities? Well, the, the cost of our communities is simply enormous. Not only is there the cost to the families, the individuals who've had the stroke themselves, and the impact that has on their lives, but there's a huge financial burden on our society as well. Uh, we've estimated that in any one year, uh, the developed world pays somewhere between $266 and $1,038 billion on dealing with the consequences of stroke. And that's even before we start to think about what most of the developing world, where by far the majority of strokes occur, uh, have to deal with. And so what kind of stroke uh, costs are involved with developing neuroprotectants or drugs to that look like they might be heading towards neuroprotectant stage? Well, the, the, the process is a relatively long process. Uh, the initial stages usually require medicinal chemistry, you know, the, the physical manufacturing of new chemicals, uh, usually either within pharmaceutical companies, chemistry departments, or sometimes within university chemistry departments. Those New molecules then have to be assessed in some fashion, uh, and the most cost-effective way of doing that is to see what they do in tissue culture, where we look at the individual uh, ability to change how cells that are relevant to our disease behave. But once you've done that, when we use that as a screening tool, if you like, uh, once we've done that, we inevitably have to put the drugs into animals that have had some form of stroke to see whether they're likely to work when we put them into the clinic. We have to do this because we don't know whether these drugs are actually going to be harmful or not. Uh, so there's a, there's a big risk with putting a new chemical into a person. So we have to in some way uh, minimise those risks by taking it through a very careful and rigorous process of evaluating the drug in a whole range of different assay systems before it gets anywhere near a person. So I guess then the costs are quite high. The costs are very, very high at each of those stages. Uh, individually, the most expensive cost is actually in the clinical trialling. Uh, this may run into many, many tens of millions to run an individual clinical trial. Uh, but that's just looking at the one molecule that gets that far. Uh, sitting as the base of the pyramid behind that one molecule are thousands upon thousands of other molecules, which individually might not have cost a great deal to test, but when you put them all together, uh, there's an, an enormous cost associated with testing all of those thousands of chemicals. And then when you're translating these drugs from sort of the bench to bedside, which is the terminology you like to yep. use, does that, how, how do those costs relate? I guess it's worth it in the end, essentially. But because it's been such a long journey towards finding neuroprotectants, how does it weigh up in that it, it's it's very difficult to give a definitive answer to that question uh, because it's very hard to estimate all of these costs. Many many of the figures that you would need just aren't available to you. But for example, uh, you can estimate from the the cost the change in share prices uh, of, that a company might have when it fails in a clinical trial, roughly how much that 
molecule that they were trialling was worth to them. And, uh, you know, that is in the order of uh, $10 billion or more uh, in most cases. Uh, so, you know, if we... <laughs> That's just for one drug. So anything that that allows us to to develop a drug that is cheaper than that risk to the share price of a company uh, is of is of benefit. Uh, and hopefully we're not looking at trying to develop just one drug for stroke, but we want a, a range of drugs that uh, treat stroke in slightly different ways, depending on the circumstances which you have available. A better filtering system, so that when we do move to clinical trial the chance of success is very, very much higher than has been the case in the past. And there are a number of steps in the drug develop development process that we might modify to achieve that. Uh, for example, we in the past we've always used animal tissue cultures for that initial screening process, but it's quite conceivable that uh, human cells don't always respond to the, to the drugs in the same way that animals do. Uh, so one thing we could sensibly do would be to use human tissue culture as one of our assay tools. And the advances in stem cell biology uh, have recently made this a, a, a realistic possibility. So that might be one way of narrowing down uh, the, the risk of failure. Another way of uh, narrowing down those, those risks uh, to give us a better translational hit uh, rate, if you like, would be to better evaluate the information that we currently have. Uh, we've not always been as critical in our assessment processes as we could be. <clears throat> uh, so, for example, we could use the processes of systematic review and meta-analysis to quantitatively aggregate the data that's already published about a particular compound to really assess whether it contains bias. Uh, and if you take those biases away, uh, if there's still a signal that's big enough to be worthy of moving to the clinic. So that's another step that you could very realistically uh, use to improve the chances of getting a drug to, to the clinic that worked. And I guess the, uh, the other thing that we should be considering is a, for the basic science teams, uh, such as mine, uh, to adopt the same sort of processes that have been used in clinical trial. Because basic science has many of the same problems as clinical trial. Uh, many of the diseases... The disease we're trying to treat is terribly disruptive to the animals, and that means that outcome, even in animals, is very variable, as it is in humans. So it's quite hard for an individual laboratory uh, to do all of the testing that's needed to take one drug to market. So one of the things we could very sensibly do would be to have consortia of laboratories that club together to make the process more efficient, uh, both intellectually and, and financially, uh, so that when we get to the end of that process and we say, Major Pharma, we have a molecule that we think is going to work, uh, that the evidence for that possibility stacks up very, very strongly, and so that only the very best drugs uh, make it into clinical trial. Why do neuroprotectants work in animals and not in human beings? Well, that's the, uh, the 60 million, or in fact, many, many billion dollar question. Uh, there are almost certainly going to be a number of reasons why we haven't had success so far. And when, when we say we haven't had success, we have had success. We've got drugs like tissue plasminogen activator and a range of molecules that are modifications on that theme that are beginning to uh, look as if they might end up in the marketplace. But unfortunately, that so far is about a one in a thousand hit rate uh, for success. And we really need to be getting up to hit rates of around 10%, uh, not 0.1%. Not, uh, not 
So part of the problem with the, with the animal studies has been that we've allowed uh, what you might call contaminated data to enter our data set. So we've, we've not as rigorously removed the influence of bias in some of the experiments as we should have done. Once we've done that, we'll have greater certainty as we move forward. Uh, we've not always been sure that the drugs ha hit a molecular target and do the things that we would expect them to do to that molecular target, and then that that same molecular target is present in human beings, and importantly that the drug gets out of the bloodstream into the brain where the target sits. Uh, so making sure that we get all of those different parts of the pathway right, uh, again, will give us a greater chance of success. So there are a whole range of things that we have to get right, and indeed we sometimes have to make sure that we get the clinical trialing right. There's little point in uh, conducting a clinical trial with a drug that in animals works within the first 10 minutes of induction of a stroke, but then expecting it to work in humans at 24 hours. Uh, and that's an extreme example, but things like that have been done in the past, and we have to make sure that we take data sensibly from the animal world, sensibly into the human world. So going back to cost analysis again, what about other potential neuroprotective activities, I guess <coughs> you call it, like hypothermia? Using well, hypothermia is, of all, the, of all the approaches that we currently know about in the literature and that has been studied in some detail, uh, the most robustly studied. Uh, it's an approach that... Uh, works seems to work in just about every animal circumstance that it's work been tested in uh, and even though there is a small amount of bias probably present in that data set when you correct for the presence of that bias there is still a strong residual positive signal from the use of hypothermia the big trouble with hypothermia is that it's difficult to implement uh, in an in an intensive care setting it's relatively routine uh, our intensive care uh, units around the world routinely use hypothermia to treat the effects of ischemia caused by heart attack. Uh, it's increasingly being used in the same way to look at uh, ischemia caused in children during uh, birthing. So there are, there are a whole range of reasons why hypothermia is actually quite an attractive candidate uh, to take to the clinic. And indeed, around the world, there are a range of clinical trials being developed to try to work out whether hypothermia might work for stroke, uh, probably the largest of which is the Eurohype trial, which has just uh, just received funding and is, being, is just starting. How plausible is hypothermia in the developing world uh, when you think of sheer numbers and size? Well, this, this, is, this is one of the difficulties. Uh, I mean, it's estimated that approximately 80% of uh, strokes take place in the developing world. Uh, that's a huge number of strokes. Uh, we estimate that there are about 15 million strokes each year. Uh, probably about 62 million survivors of stroke in the in the world at any one time. Those numbers are simply enormous. Uh, and hypothermia would be something that would be quite difficult to implement in most of the developing world uh, because it requires quite a lot of manpower. Doesn't require particularly sophisticated uh, imaging technologies. Uh, in, in a sense, it's quite a simple approach, uh, but it does require people. So uh, it, it could be done, but I, th I think it would be one of the harder things to do uh, where resources are limited. You've been listening to an interview with 
Associate Professor David Howells, who is corresponding author on the article Improving the Efficiency of the Development of Drugs for Stroke. The other authors are Emily Senna, Victoria O'Collins and Malcolm McLeod. The International Journal of Stroke is the flagship publication of the World Stroke Organisation. Please consider becoming a member.